Well, hello, everyone. This is Becky Davidson, and this is the session, Why Does My Dog Work For Me? And my dog actually asked me that this afternoon. But um, I'm really pleased to introduce to you Del Rodman. Del's been in the guide dog work for 37 years. He's been a, a field representative at Guiding Eyes for the Blind, doing all kinds of home visits, home interviews, zone visits, trainings, home trainings, all the stuff instructors do. Um, and he is also um, an assessor for the International Guide Dog Federation. So without further ado, I give you Del Rodman. Do you want this one? So isn't it nice that I invited my own crowd here today, that I went around and gave out personal invitations and you all showed up. Um, I, I greatly appreciate that. Now they want to get paid? Hey, well, they can go gamble and that just might happen. So, uh, Becky, thank you so much. I'm just going to review a little bit of that. Um, I have been spent uh, the last 20 years working for Guiding Eyes as a home-based field rep and my primary job as a field rep is to conduct home interviews. And during the time in the guide dog field, the last 37 years, I estimated I've probably done over 2,500 home interviews. So I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, in addition, as Becky said, I provide follow-up to our graduates. I do some home trainings. Um, I also do the home portions of our action program. And we do zone visits meaning that I see all the grads within my area every year, oh, about twice, uh, uh, once every two years. As an assessor for the International Guide Dog Federation, I assess guide dog organizations to ensure their compliance uh, to the 10 standards as written by the IGF, IGDF and agreed by the member organizations. I began as an assessor in September of 2014, and uh, just last month I completed my eighth and ninth assessment. Um, so... That's what happens when you volunteer to do more than your, than your requirement. You, generally, as an assessor, you assess um, two schools every other year. And, so, and you think I would know better about this because I was in the military, so I know what happens when you volunteer. <laughs> and, but I did volunteer because I wanted to spend uh, more time in the field looking at other organizations. And um, lo and behold, they took me up on that. You know, what I love about being an assessor is that it really gives me the opportunity to observe other organizations, organizations that have the same exact goals as all of us do here today, um, and that is to provide the best dog guides possible backed by the best services to their clients, users, or grads. And while observing, I'm constantly reminded about the versatility of the dog. There is no one training methodology that is best when training a dog. There are many different methodologies, and they all work. Different isn't necessarily better. It's just different. But observing or hearing about different training methodologies should be a constant reminder to us all to have an open mind when it comes to training of dog guides. After all, the one thing I can assure you is that dogs are not the ones with a closed mind. The dog's inability to understand our desire and respond is a direct reflection of our inability to communicate our desire fairly and clearly. 
And some of the examples in the past of where we had closed minds, when you think about it, escalators. Now, I know I've been in work a long time, and some of you say, what do you mean escalators? We've been doing escalators forever. But at one point, we didn't do them. And someone said, let's give it a try. And it wasn't the dog that had the problem with doing escalators. It was the people who thought that the dog couldn't. And we all are well aware of the issue of food reward. You know, we most certainly can't do food reward because our dogs are going to scavenge. And we know that today not to be true at all. And then there are the people in the field that said, you know, we can work with deaf-blind handlers. People said, no, you can't do that. Well, we can. And again, it was a closed mind of the people who worked in the field. It wasn't the closed mind of the dog. I was just in um, Japan, and one thing I know about guide dog work, and one thing I know why I still love it, because I get really excited when I see something new. And I was in Japan, um, northern Japan, and in that program there, they train their dogs to work on both sides. And the graduates work the dog on both sides. So when a graduate is out working their dog, they might switch the dog 10, 15 times during a workout. And the dog doesn't care. And the instructors don't care because this is the system they grew up with. But I'll almost guarantee you, I know years ago, if you had said dogs can work both sides equally as well, same time, you'd say, eh, I don't know. I don't know. Can they do that? And I go right back to the fact that it's our mind that says they can. No one ever says to the dog, do you think you can do that? And I bet the dog would say, yeah, I bet I can do that. I can do that without a problem. So before we begin today, I just want to say in my best lawyer voice, <laughs> the ramblings and musings of the speaker do not reflect the stated training policies of Gotti Nice for the Blind. Nor should Guiding Eyes for the Blind be held accountable for any crazy theories presented here today. <laughs> so, it's all coming from me, not from the program. As I said earlier, training methodologies at schools are different, and that different isn't necessarily better. It's just different, because all schools produce a great result, and that is a great dog and a great working team. Today, I'll be talking about simple training principles and address three common reasons a guide dog handler will reach out for assistance. So keeping that in mind, let's get to work. And unfortunately, we do have to talk a little bit about science. And I don't want anyone to go to sleep on me. But when we're training a dog and we're working with a dog, we really need to understand the theory behind it. And so I've tried to break it down very clearly. Um, because I have to break it down clearly because if it gets complicated, I'm not going to understand it, and I'm not going to be able to explain it to you. I'm a very literal thinker. Um, I like to stay in the box. I like white and black. I don't like gray. I think gray is for someone who wants to accommodate everyone and not make a decision. So in working with your dog, I think the first thing you need to remember is that your dog only spent an average of five to six months during training, and for some programs in this country, a lot less in formal training before working with you for an additional two to four weeks. I really think that qualifies your dog as being a rookie. And I think you may not like that terminology, but they are a rookie. They only spend a certain amount of time in training. Yeah, I know we have great foster families, great puppy walkers, who raised them in a home and worked diligently to ensure the dog was socialized and had appropriate behaviors. What I'm hoping is, 
is that during your initial training, when you began to learn to work with your dog, that you thought about focusing on your dog's personality. Yeah, I know during training you had to learn about all the mechanics. You had to learn how to make a right turn, left turn. You had to do a street crossing. You had to learn to get on a bus, public transportation. You had to do all of that. But really the key component is your dog's personality. You need to have learned, and hopefully are still learning, what motivates your dog. Is it food? Is it toy? Is it human touch? Which is really never to be denied. And equally important, you need to know what interests or distracts your dogs. Is it a dog? Is it a cat? Is it a bird? Is it people? Maybe it's that love of the all-consuming nose. It's then once you begin to arrive home, and I'm sure people here can uh, validate this, that you begin to get an inkling of your dog's house manners. Again, personality. I would say you've been truly blessed if that rookie of yours is great in all areas, only requiring the initial practice, practice, practice on your part with little problem solving. However, and I know people in here are going to disagree with this, there are no perfect dogs even if you think you have the perfect dog. Your dog may, just may, have a behavior or two that needs changing or improved upon. I have no shortcuts to offer you today. If you want a shortcut, you may want to check out Amazon or eBay for that magical dog training wand. And if I were you, I would go for overnight shipping. So let's talk a little bit about science and dog training without making your hair stand on the end or me putting you to sleep again. Hang in there with me because some of this science jargon is important to know when wondering why your dog does what it does, why your dog has good, or why your dog has annoying behavior. So if you don't have the perfect dog and you can't buy a magic wand, ponder this. Here comes some science. Every time your dog initiates an activity and successfully, successfully completes it, the behavior has been, been reinforced, and your dog is more likely to repeat that activity in the future. The more often he has the opportunity to perform a self-satisfying specific behavior, the harder he'll try to do it in the future. Successful execution of the behavior can be rewarding in itself. This is why it's important to actively control the situation in which unwanted behavior occurs if you want the dog to stop doing it. My favorite saying, and if, you've, if you're a graduate of mine, you hear this often, my favorite saying to my grads is that being proactive produces much better results than being reactive when you're working with a dog. Another way of saying it is reinforce behaviors equal the likelihood of the dog repeating. Even if you inadvertently reinforce behaviors you don't want, or if those behaviors are so self-reinforced by the environment, it's going to equal an increase of that behavior. So a great basic example of this is a dog that constantly sniffs the edge of the building or the pole before going to the down curb. I can tell you that checking P-mail on the way to the curb is very reinforcing to most dogs. They enjoy doing that. And I know you're going to say, oh, but Dell, come on. I give my dog food reward at the down curb. 
So why does he still sniff at the pole or the building line? I've been told that food reinforcement or random food reward or high amount of praise should make the behavior stronger of going to the curb. Well, you know what? I guess no one explained that theory to your dog. <laughs> and I guess your dog likes the old adage of killing two birds with one stone. In other words, the dog does what works for him. may not work for you at that moment, but by God, it's working for that dog. So let's analyze how we reinforce positive, positive behavior in our dogs during training and, or, or problem solving. So this is a quote, and I'm sure those of you that have been reading dog books will know exactly where this quote came from. A reinforcer is anything that, occurring in conjunction with an act, tends to increase the probability that that act will, get, will occur again. Anyone can tell me who wrote that? In the back, someone raised a hand? Yes, Karen Pryor, don't shoot the dog. So in other words, the desired behavior is gen and what I want to say about this um, in reference to that quote is that the desired behavior is generally marked by the use of a clicker, a sound, or the word yes, and the reinforcer might be food. In dog training schools, both positive and negative reinforcers are used with some programs now weighing heavily on positive reinforcers. The positive reinforcer might be the use of food, a toy, verbal with physical praise. The choice is yours for something that's positive. But it has to be something that the dog wants and the dog enjoys, something the dog wants to work to get from you. The negative reinforcer might be a leash correction, the pressure that's exerted on the muzzle when using a halty, a firm tone of disapproval, a mild harness check. It's anything that the dog would like to avoid. When using a negative reinforcer, be careful. We all use them, but you better be careful. Because what you're, you consider to be a mild negative reinforcer might very well be perceived as severe by your dog. So you need to be careful whenever you use them, and we use them all the time in guide dog work. So you better know your dog. Science tells us that behaviors taught and reinforced with positive reinforcers are stronger, more reliable, and predictable than behaviors taught or reinforced by the use of negative reinforcers. I'm not saying don't use negative reinforcers. Good God, we don't have time. We have to use them. Anyone tells you you can do it totally the other way around in guide dog work with a limited amount of time, I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to see you never use a, a mild harness check, never tell the dog no, never restrain the dog. Those are all negative. So just be aware that any time you are using a negative reinforcer, you put yourself at risk for the very predictable fallout follow that punishment may produce. Negative reinforcer is punishment. That sometimes brings fear. It brings avoidance. It brings confusion. It brings re reduced initiative. 
And that's just but to name a few. You also risk, when you use negative reinforcers, the spillover of your dog associating the negative reinforcers with the training environment that it occurred. But more importantly, you risk that the dog is going to associate that negative reinforcer with you, the trainer. So be careful. That's what I say. That dog says, yes, be careful. Okay, so one more quote from Karen. And science further tells us that in order to maintain an already learned behavior with some degree of reliability, it is, it is not only not necessary to reinforce it every time, it is vital that you do not reinforce it on a regular basis, but instead switch to using reinforcement only occasionally and on a random or unpredictable basis. This is in an ideal world, world where your dog or the animal is performing at a high level, not the case when you're working training, and teaching the dog a new behavior. Just want to be clear about that. So, how does all these proven theories of science work in the real world of dog guides? Let's talk about distractions, whether they're dog, cats, birds, etc. Something in the environment that elicits an unwanted behavior response from your dog. So hopefully you've been listening. You know by now that if you only use a negative reinforcer in response to a distraction, a fir firm tone of voice, a least correction, that the intended wanted behavior of not being distracted is going to be very unpredictable. It might even be rewarding to the dog. After all, some distractions, and we all know this, some corrections are theatrical more than they are a correction. You know, someone's correcting their dog, hooping and hollering at their dog, and the dog's nose is still stuck in the bush, sniffing away. So the dog's not too upset about what's going on. So when you use that type of a correction, a negative reinforcer, it doesn't make the behavior predictable. Maybe next time your dog is going to go by that dog that you corrected last time for. Or maybe not. In other words, you've now given the dog total control over the situation and you simply react instead of being proactive in an attempt to modify or change that behavior. You've given all the power back to the dog. You do something, I react to it. I've never showed you to do anything differently. I'm just reacting. Can you use purely positive reinforcers to modify your dog's behavior in reference to distractions? Maybe you could. I think I mentioned that a, a moment ago. But I don't think you have the time. I don't think you have the patience. And I know you don't have the sight. Because training by use of purely positive reinforcers initially requires controlling the situation and close observation of your dog. So the reward is delivered timely and the behavior is cemented. For example... It's nearly impossible to teach the dog to ignore the environment by marking the behavior of eye contact, eye contact with you upon your dog seeing another dog. And you're rewarding timely. Kind of hard to do that if you don't have sight. 
Kind of hard to do that if you can't anticipate the dog coming up. So this plays into the old adage of don't tell the dog what not to do, but what to do. Example would be, I see the loose dog, and I ask my dog to touch. And we'll talk about that in a moment. I never say to the dog, don't look, because that's telling the dog what not to do. I'm not going to say no. I'm going to ask the dog to do something that I can reward. It's time-consuming, but it does, and it's really, really helpful if you have sight. So that's the reason we have to use negativity. If I could do that in the best, true sense of the world, of, of the word, I would use true shaping if I had time and sight, if I had the time to do it. I would sit there and just wait. When my dog got distracted, and I would wait for that dog to look back at me, and I would click and reward. So hopefully the dog can begin to associate, leave the environment, come back to me. I'm going to reward you for that. It's a little hard for some of us to do. But, you know, as I say, seriously, who has a freaking time for free shaping? I don't. You know, scientists and behaviorists do as they want to prove, they want to prove the theory. You know, but the rest of us really have a life, and we need to get on with it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't take the time to work towards a happy medium. So maybe in, in, dog, in dog guide work, dog guide work, you sometimes need to tell your dog what not to do, followed by what to do. The initial response from your dog towards a distraction, maybe it's movement, maybe it's whining, is one of the few times you are put in the position of reacting first. You have to. After all, you can't generally anticipate when you're going to come across a distraction when you're out working. However, you do know darn well when your dog whines or the pace of your dog suddenly increases that he has spotted something of great interest. I'm always a bit amazed when I watch a handler and they don't respond to the dog's initial increase in pace. The dog has just seen a distraction. The dog is giving you a really good physical cue that they are definitely interested in something else. And the handler does nothing. To me, that's kind of like seeing the embers of a fire and watching the fire until the embers develop into a full-fledged roaring fire before you decide to maybe break out the garden hose or call the fire department. So in other words, you've let this dog become more and more focused on the distraction before responding. Therefore, your chances of getting the dog back to you quickly has lessened and lessened and lessened. And as I say to my graduates, you don't need to know the reason. You don't need to know what the dog is interested in. Who cares? All you need to know is that you did not ask for that increase in pace. And you need to respond now, not tomorrow, not as the dog has increased its interest. So what do we do? We're going to talk about distractions. The first thing in changing your dog's behavior in regards to a distraction, you first need to teach your dog a behavior that the dog can do following being told what not to do. 
In other words, your dog has to know the answer to the problem that is being presented. And in this case, it's a distraction. You're saying to your dog, you can't go towards that distraction, but you can do this. You are, let's see, this has to be taught when you're going to teach your dog of what they can do in regards to a distraction. It has to be taught in a zero distraction area. If you wait until your dog is in the middle of a dog distraction or a cat distraction or a person distraction or a bird distraction, and then you attempt to teach the dog your desired behavior that you would like the dog to go to, well, then good luck on that. And you let me know how that's working out for you. Because I can tell you right now, no hop up, that's a disaster. Because you're telling your dog no, and you're telling your dog to hop up, and then you're correcting the dog with a leash. It's all negative, 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 negative. With a desired, and you know what's going to happen, it never becomes reliable. You've never fixed the problem. All you've done is gotten the dog by the distraction. That's it. You never, docked, you never taught the dog to do something else in regard to the distraction. You just said, let's get by this. As ugly as it may be, and as unsafe as it may be, we're just going to get by because I want to move on. I don't think that works well. And I think there are lots of different things you can do to address that. For example, one thing you might want to do is to teach your dog to touch your hand in response to the verbal cue, touch, coinciding with a verbal marker of yes, and then deliver the food. In a zero distraction area, the dog will learn very quickly the game, and the dog will very quickly begin to wait and watch for your next cue to touch. They want the food. They know how to get the food. You got the food. And they're just waiting for the cue. So essentially, when you're teaching the dog that, you're teaching the dog to ignore the environment because you have something much better to offer the dog. And the dog knows how to get that reward. So remember, you first need to get the desired response, the behavior you want. I gave the example of touch. You need to mark the behavior with a click or a verbal yes, and then you need to reward the behavior. You also need, need to begin to practice in a zero distraction area. You then begin to practice in a low distraction area, such as moving outside of your home, followed by areas of mild stimulation, but not key areas of distraction for your dog. Meaning, if, my, if I'm working on dog distractions, and I've taught my dog the cue of touch, and it's going really, really well, and then I move outside, and that's going well, my next step is not to introduce my dog to, to other dogs yet. I need to make sure that my dog is really really responsive and knows exactly what I want. So I'm going to go to something else that's a mild distraction. Maybe it's a playground. Maybe it's the dog food aisle in the store. Eventually, you practice in areas of increased stimulation 
and begin in areas of mild key distractions for your dog, as I said. This, you know, I, as I told you today, I don't have any shortcuts for you. If you're trying to modify behavior, you've got to put the work in. You, you just can't get on the phone, call the trainer, if you haven't put the work in, or if the trainer arrives and makes suggestions to you, you don't practice. I got no shortcuts. You got to practice, and you got a constant proof to ensure, you got to do constant proofing to ensure that the behavior is cemented. Depending on your dog, you might need a very high value reward in order to trump your dog's self-interest and self-rewarding behavior. Maybe just a kibble. I mean, if we're talking a Labrador and it's not too high, maybe it's just a kibble from the food pan. If we're talking a German Shepherd, they might go, hey, that ain't cutting it. I really like what I see over there, and you don't have jack for me in that pouch. So do whatever you want, but I'm going to continue doing what I want. So sometimes you have to up that value. And you're going to get that reliability, and you're only going to get it through repetition. So, we've talked about teaching the dog a cue, something the dog can do. And so the scenario might look like this. Your dog suddenly increases his pace in response to the distraction. You need to react now, not later. Remember the fire example I gave you. You don't need to know and wait and see what is my dog distracted by. All you need to know is my dog's distracted. It's not focused. You calmly Drop the harness handle. Depending upon the dog, there may be a little bit of a more forceful leash correction. But I'm telling you again, you better know your dog before you haul off and give that leash correction if you're going to do it. Particularly if it's a new dog to you in training, and I'm talking to instructors. Because you stand the chance. If you don't know that dog well, and you've now introduced that negative reinforcer, you stand the chance of not only ruining your relationship with that dog, you also stand the chance that the dog may not begin to show you other behaviors because they're going to say, you know what? I don't trust you anymore. And then you put that dog in class and that dog blows up. And you say, wow, I never saw those distractions. So if you're going to use negative, and we all use negative, you better know what you're doing, and you better know your dog. And for the, gradu- for the people in here that have guide dogs, you know your dog. You know what you need to do in face of a distraction. So you're going to calmly drop that harness handle. And then you're going to ask your dog to touch. And your dog responds. You might need to repeat the cue several times. I work with grads, and they'll say, you know, drop the handle, and they'll say touch. Yes, and they feed. Touch. Yes, they feed. And they say, okay, we're ready to go. And I'm like, mm, is your dog focused on you? Or is your dog still going back to the distraction? And sometimes they do, and they go back, and they go back. You've got to be patient. You've got to continue to work on that and reward appropriately. And tell, and what are we trying to achieve here? We're trying to achieve getting your dog to leave the environment and your dog to come back to you. That's what we want the dog to do. There are lots of variables, as I said, in how you're going to treat that. And it's also going to depend upon your dog's self-interest. Unfortunately, 
again, you're put in the position of reacting and telling your dog what not to do instead of being proactive and initially telling the dog what to do. And by that I mean some people may drop the handle, no. Then they ask the dog what to do. You could drop your handle, not say anything to the dog. It's still negative. Even though you haven't given a correction, it's still a negative reinforcer because you're preventing that dog from doing what he wants to do. You're putting pressure on that leash and holding that dog back. So it's still negative, not as negative as a leash correction, but it's still negative. Or, because I'm just a crazy guy, you can forget everything I just talked about. And you can continue to tell your dog no in conjunction with a leash correction and drag your dog right by that distraction. Or you might want to stop and do obedience. That's negative too. What I can guarantee you is that those responses that you're doing are all filled with negative. And you're going to get the predictable outcome in that you are now have unpredictability in your dog's behavior towards the distraction. Next time, they might go by the dog. And you say, see, Dell, you're wrong. He went by that dog. And then you go a block later, and your dog tears after that dog. Because you haven't taught your dog anything. You really haven't. You told him they can't do it. But you never told the dog what the dog can do. You've just simply said, no, you can't do that. And I'm going to hang on to the leash, and I'm going to tell you, hop up. And someone says, well, Dell, I am telling him what to do. I'm telling him to hop up. Yeah, but you're also popping him with the leash. It's all negative, 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 negative. Dog doesn't care. He's going to go right back, and he's going to do what dogs do, and he's going to be distracted because you've never taught the dog another behavior. So, number two. How are we doing here? Okay. Let's talk about the all-consuming self-interest, self-rewarding behavior of your dog in regards to Sniffing. Get over it. <laughs> if you think this natural, self-rewarding, self-interest behavior of your dog can be totally controlled, if you think that, then I want to ask you what planet are you from, and I really might suggest to you that you need to go back to a white cane because it just ain't going to happen. When I'm in the field, I, l I view sniffing in two categories. I look at it as generalized sniffing and location-specific. And the way I look at generalized sniffing is that I look at it when your dog is not in drive. And by drive, I mean every dog has a natural pace. You know when your dog is focused well, and you know what that pace feels like, right? You know when your dog's out there working and working well. I call that being in drive. When a dog isn't in drive, the dog could either be too slow or the dog could be too excited and way too fast. And if your dog is too slow or your dog is too fast, are there any guesses out there what your dog might be inclined to do? Sniff, you say? Yeah. They're going to sniff because they're not focused. And they're not getting any information from you. 
It's a very natural self-interest, self-rewarding behavior that your dog loves to indulge in. You, the handler, by not keeping your dog in drive or allowing this self-rewarding behavior to perpetuate. Also, by not keeping your dog in drive, you prevent yourself from being in the position of not having to tell your dog what not to do. And by that I mean, no, leave it, hop up. No, leave it, hop up. Come on, leave it, hop up. Come on, leave it, hop up, hop up, hop up, hop up, hop up, hop up, hop up. Negative, 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 negative. And your dog says, yeah, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to hop up because I'm going to go right to the next bush because that's all we're doing. You're reacting to the dog sniffing. It's not the problem most of the time. In my experience, the problem in generalized sniffing is most often alleviated by working with the grad to keep the dog in drive. If I just simply focus on the grad and getting the dog to move at what is drive, natural pace, sniffing goes away. It may be getting the dog to increase the pace to get back to natural drive. It may be I have to put a little pressure on the dog to steady down because he's so freaking excited, he's going to drag you from the bush to the bush to the bush to the bush. You're busy correcting for the sniffing. I'm here to tell you, my experience is not the sniffing. It's the drive. The dog is not in drive. The dog is not focused on you, and the dog is not focused on the work. That's my humble opinion. Let's talk about location sniffing. Remember the example of the dog sniffing the pole or the building line before going to the curb? That's an example of location sniffing. It's predictable. I know when I travel down the street, my dog is going to sniff at that pole, sniff at that building line. This can be handled in a very proactive manner. Meaning, hate to say it, folks, shame on you if you know in advance that your dog is going to sniff that same building line or that pole on a daily basis, and you wait for the dog to sniff, and then you react. That's not being proactive. That's giving the dog all the power. You're just simply reacting to what the dog does. If that's your mode of working with a dog, well, good luck. It doesn't work well. What I have people do is I have them take the leash out ahead of time in anticipation of the dog sniffing because I know the dog's going to sniff. They know the dog's going to sniff. As we take the leash out, we begin to encourage the dog to drive so that the dog will go past the building line or the pole to the curb. Why do we have the leash out? So that the moment, the moment, not 12 steps later, not when the dog is hanging his head on the pole. The moment you feel your dog's head turn to sniff, you can very quickly redirect your dog. It's going to take time and consistency on your part, but eventually you are going to have a clean, no-sniffing approach to that curb. Could you use the technique of touch? Don't do this, do this. Sure you could. I don't find the graduates are going to take the time in regards to location sniffing. Simply because location sniffing, it's really more annoying than unsafe when compared to a, 
a moderate or severe dog distraction. And it takes time to use touch correctly. So you really need to decide when you want to do it. It's the same when entering a restaurant. My dog, when he enters the restaurant, tends to sniff all the tables, yada, 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 yada. And I say, shame on you. If you know ahead of time that the dog's going to do it, and you're waiting for the dog to do it, and then you're complaining about the dog doing it, well, your dog's going to do it for the next frickin' eight years. <laughs> Unless you decide you want to be a little bit more proactive about it. Like, maybe you might want to take your leash out. And maybe the moment the head turns, you might want to redirect your dog. So you do have to have, if you have consistency on your part, it makes your life simple. And believe me, when you're consistent, it really makes your dog's life simple. So this is uh, just an observation I've had at the conference, watching um, all sorts of dog handlers. And rarely, rarely did I see a handler approach a table and then tell the dog what to do. And remember, when we're working with dogs, we really do want to tell the dog what to do, not what, not what to do. We're trying to teach the dog. We're trying to create and mold behavior. I saw everything but what to do. It was all about what not to do. No, leave it, stop sniffing. No, leave it, stop sniffing. I even heard of four-letter words a few times in reference to the dog. Would you please stop that? I even had a gentleman come over to me and you know, confess that a lovely golden retriever when he was talking and turned his back. This was an exhibitor. The dog went under the table and ate his sandwich. <laughs> he thought it was quite funny. No, I mean, dogs are dogs. I laugh, too. I mean, dog, you know. Don't get a dog if you don't ever want to be embarrassed. But why not? Why not approach the table and tell your dog what to do? For God's sakes, approach the table and tell your dog down. And stay. And reward the dog. You know, if you do that consistently, I will absolutely 100% guarantee you, and I'll pay much better than the casino does down there, <laughs> that if you did this every time, and you were consistent, and you rewarded your dog, you'd approach the table, and after a while, your dog would just lie down. Because it says, that's what we do. That's what I've been trained to do. But no one does that. They just kind of hang on to the leash, and talk, and pull. And if you're not concerned about that behavior in regards to yourself, think about the other people with dogs. They're trying to get by you. They might be trying to be worked by you. And your dog is sticking his or her nose up that dog's butt in that dog's face, distracting their dog. So, if not for yourself, think about someone else. Put your dog on a downstay. And believe me, the dogs are much more comfortable when they know what to do than when we're constantly telling them what not to do. Okay, so you don't want me to sniff. What do you want me to do? You haven't told me. You let me do figure it out on my own. And as I said, if you let them figure it out, dogs are dogs, and they're going to do what they want to do. So the third thing I want to talk about that I get calls about in the field is the greeting of guests when they arrive at your home. <laughs> right? We have that happen? Yeah. Your dog gets a wee bit excited, or maybe your dog gets more than a wee bit excited. So, we can either be proactive, or we can be reactive. Hopefully, at this point, you're thinking more proactively. So what's the first thing to be proactive you need to do? Any ideas? Come on. Do what? You could? Yeah. 
You could. But do I think it's being proactive? I need to talk to my frickin' guest. And I need to tell them the rule. That's the first thing I need to do. Because I need to make sure my guest is going to behave appropriately towards my dog. Because I'm working on a problem. And I find that most of the time it's the guest that's about 60% of the problem. Hey, how you doing, dog? I haven't seen you forever. Oh, you're out. oh no, no, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry if he jumps on me. I don't care, it's okay with me. I love your dog. Ba, 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 ba. We've all heard that, right? And your dog's going like an idiot? You're saying, well, maybe you do, but other people don't. So the first thing you do is you need to make it very clear to your guest to ignore your dog. It's going to, it's going to go a long way um, to helping you gain control. I once had a grad I was working with, and she had lots of problems with this. So we put a huge note on the outside of her door. And it said, ignore the dog. And that means you. And you was underlined. Because everything, everyone thinks, oh, it doesn't mean me. The dog loves me. I love dogs. So it couldn't be me. So we're trying to get people to understand, leave the dog alone. You know, my personal experience, and I go into a lot of homes to do a lot of home interviews, and I see a lot of graduates. I walk in and I ignore the dog. Whether it's a guide dog or a pet dog, I ignore them. I don't make eye contact. I don't do anything. And what I find, the frequent comment that I get from most people is, wow, how come my dog's not jumping all over you? How come my dog's not barking at you? Or my dog's barking and I said, leave the dog alone. He'll, he'll eventually stop because I ignore the dog. They're getting nothing from me. They're getting no challenge from me. I'm not staring at them. I'm not trying to convince them, oh, what a good guy I am. I just ignore them. And if we took the human element out of it, it's going to go a long ways in controlling the dog. So, now that we've hopefully taken care of the human element and our visitor understands their role, now we need to teach the dog a behavior, something that they can do, right? Not just what you can't do. You can't go see the guest. You can't jump on the guest. You can't bark. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't, 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 can't. You're not teaching your dog a thing. You're just telling them what they can't do. All right, I can't. So what the hell do you want me to do? So we have to teach them a behavior. You could teach them a new behavior. You could teach them to go to your place, which means go to a mat. But why? Why, when your dog already responds, responds well to touch? Right? So do I need to teach a new behavior? No. My dog responds to touch. Now comes the real fun part. You can then link the behavior of touch, which in this case is a self-control behavior, to a fun behavior that your dog desires. And what does your dog ultimately desire at this point? Now, come on, you're not asleep. They want to go see that guest. Right? That's what they really want to do. But I've, I've now taught them the behavior, self-control. They want to go see the guest. Now that my guest has been able to sit down without being accosted by the dog... And I can say to them, I'm going to turn the dog loose, and I want you to continue to ignore the dog, please. So, 
I'm going to, at that point, unclip the leash and calmly and emotionally use the cue free. So your guest has already sat down. Again, you've had time to review that you're going to do this. Ignore the dog. Don't look now, but you've just used the pre-MAC principle of training. You've bridged two behaviors. And you've let the dog self-reward himself. First is a controlling behavior. Second is you let the dog do what they really want to do. They want to go see the guest, but they're not going to get much from the guest. Eventually, they're not going to be as excited, but they're still always going to want to go see the guest. So you're using pre-MAC as a training principle. And this is one of the few times that you can probably get away with this as someone working with a guide dog. Because if you really want to use pre-MAC, and you are really bold and really crazy, you could use it in the midst of a dog distraction once you controlled your dog. I could. Yeah, sure. Why not? My dog goes towards the dog. I use a controlling behavior. Touch. I control my dog. Ultimately, my dog wants to go see that dog. If I were real stupid and want to use pre-MAC, I could turn my dog loose and say free. He could go see the dog. It's a little bit of a problem when you don't have any sight <laughs> because your dog might be distracted to that dog across the street. Not a good idea. Your dog might be distracted to something that you don't want them to go see. So it doesn't really work well in that case. In this case, it worked really well. A nice controlling behavior. We cut the dog loose because at that point, they want to go see that person. So you've given them exactly what they wanted. You have taught them, control yourself, and you're going to get what you want. It's pretty easy to do. So we've covered two things. And what time do we got here? Oh, God. All right. So <laughs> um, I still got a little bit of time, I think. All right. So I've covered distractions. I've covered sniffing. And I covered guests. We've covered those three things. And hopefully you've gained a little bit of um, information out of that. So now, this is the fun part. This is the fun part we call Del Crazy. So now I just want to talk a few minutes about, you know, the crazy thoughts that go through my mind. Thoughts that I ponder. In other words, uh, pardon my language, BS. <laughs> so these are just things I think about. Um, and I know you're going to hear these things, and, but you know what? You've got to hear them because i got the microphone, and you've got to be polite. <laughs> so this is my one chance for me to like, throw out these stupid things that go through my mind, and you've got you to listen to them. And you can leave the room and go, you know, that guy really should retire. Uh, you know, maybe they had a nice uh, home for old guide dog trainers. I don't know. So the first thing I think about I often wondered when a dog, what a, I, I wonder what a dog is thinking. And this is in reference to trainers and sometimes to graduates. When a dog that's lying quietly on the floor and the dog and the trainer or the graduate gives the dog a food reward, when another dog passes by, or just simply because the dog's lying there quietly. 
does the dog understand that the food has been delivered for lying quietly? I don't know. Maybe the dog connects the food being delivered for staring at another dog. I don't know. Maybe the dog connects nothing. Maybe the dog just takes the food and goes back to watching the environment. Or maybe you are so good in delivering the food that that exact second your dog was thinking when they're looking at another dog, yeah, you come one step closer and I am so going to kick your ass. (laughs) And yeah, he just said yes because he gave me food. So that is right. I was just reinforced for that. (laughs) Or maybe you just put food down there when that dog was thinking, you step one step closer and I'm going to jump up and play with you. I don't know. I don't know what the dog's thinking. But I wonder, because food just came down. We didn't ask the dog to do anything. We just gave the dog food. Dog probably said, yeah, okay, I'll take it. Food's food. But I do wonder that maybe if you're working on dog distractions or people distractions, whatever it may be, I wonder that if you're watching your dog and the moment that that dog made contact and the little ears went eep because they saw a dog or they saw a person and if myself as a trainer at that moment just simply said to the dog, touch. The dog touches. I say yes. I give food. So now I know what the dog's thinking because I just asked the dog to do something. And I've also said to the dog, leave the environment. Come back to me. Don't stare at that dog. Don't get yourself all worked up about that dog. Come back to me. And I'm going to reward you for that. Focus on me. And if I'm good, and if I think I'm really good, I can then begin to build duration. So I know the dog truly leaves the environment. And by duration, I mean, I might ask the dog to touch. The dog touches. I say yes, I get food. The next cue I want to put on that is watch me. Because I might say touch. The dog touches. I don't say yes. The dog stares at me. (laughs) And when the dog is stared for a bit, yes, I get food. So now I'm building duration. So now I'm convincing the dog, leave the environment, stay with me. I'm asking you to do something. I'm telling you what to do, not what to do. I'm not dropping food from heaven and hoping the dog figures out that that food means whatever. Dogs don't work that way. We have to tell them what to do, not what not to do. And if I'm working on a distraction... I want the dog to focus with me. Otherwise, you're just simply managing the distraction. If you're constantly getting after your dog because it's looking after another dog, you're constantly correcting, you're managing. When you got sight, you can manage a little bit better. When you don't have sight and you give it to a grad, they're going to have trouble managing. And when you're managing, you're not training. You're not giving that dog the opportunity to respond to a behavior. So, got one more to go. 
And then you're going to be begging for someone to take the mic from me. Because this one is just like out there. But it's thoughts that go through my stupid mind. We know that dogs are inherently social animals. We know that they're strongly motivated to to maintain contact with familiar individuals. They want to avoid isolation. So I can't help but wonder when a behaviorist, when they trot out their proven scientific theories, have any of these theories ever been proven in real life situations? And more importantly, on a daily basis? I don't know. Yeah, I know. I know competition dogs do well in the context of a competition. After all, it's the dog's real opportunity to have meaningful contact with the trainer or the owner, either during training for the competition or during the competition. Sea mammals perform really well in the context of training and performing. But what I just happen to wonder, what if the dogs and the other ma- mammals had constant contact with the trainer and performed constantly? Would those behaviors diminish? I don't know. Would, and come back here, would random reward still make the behavior stronger? Is depriving the dog or other mammals or birds of human interaction an unspoken part of these proven theories? I don't know. Are dogs or dog guides in training more responsive to random reward than with the dog guide user due to the kennel isolation? The dog gets out of the kennel, it's their one time to react with you. I mean, the one time to interact with you. They're keyed up. They want that interaction. And you say, oh my God, random reward works so well. My dog is just on the money. Respond, respond, respond. And then I give him to the graduate. And I see lots of graduates out there. Do, 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 do. They give their food at the curb. And you know what I see? Do I see the dog ever ignoring things going down the block? No, they get about two feet from the curb and they go, oh boy, here we are. So I'm not quite sure a random reward in the context of guide dog work makes a, strong, makes a behavior stronger. And I have to, and my wife tells me all the time that I'm just a blooming idiot. She says, you know, you just think about these things way too much. <laughs> I don't know. But I do got to wonder if isolation has a part of it. And if, any of my, if my ponderings have any validity, then that simply means you as guide dog users, must work harder when developing behaviors as your dogs are never isolated. And that means when you step out that door, that environment is much more enticing and stimulating than you are. When we have isolation, you're really exciting because it's their chance to have contact with you. But if they're with you 24 hours a day, I hate to tell you, you're not that exciting. (laughs) They hear you all the time. They have that contact. They sleep on your bed, for God's sakes. And don't tell me they don't, because we know they do. So you step out the door, and they're like, yeah, I'll get back to you in a moment, because you know over here, this is pretty interesting. You've got to work harder. At least I think you do. So in closing, and I will take a few questions, I know I'm going to get kicked off in a moment. 
if you remember anything, just remember, always when possible, don't tell the dog what not to do, but what to do. If you're constantly telling the dogs what not to do, you're not training, you're managing. You better give them something to do, something that they can wrap their head around and something you can reward them for. Whenever possible, you need to be proactive rather than reactive. Dogs are social animals. Don't ever think that food reward is a substitution for meaningful, physical, human contact. They got to have it. Um, talk to me later, and I can give you some examples of what happened when that doesn't. I got some really good ones. And the last thing I say is we as humans, we can advocate for ourselves. You know, when you're in class, if you don't like what's going on in class, you can talk to the supervisor. When you're out in the field, if you don't like the field rep, you can let them know. You can advocate for yourself. It's our responsibility, all of us, to advocate for all dogs to be, be treated fairly and humanely. That's all I got to say. So I would like to... Don't kick me off yet. Give me a moment. You guys, you guys, you guys ate into my time. I was watching. Okay, so <laughs> questions. Questions or comments? Um, let me grab a... I, I, can write, I can run my mic. I, I think I can. Go ahead. Yeah. I don't know which one's working. Are they both So, I, I, please don't make the questions too complicated. Because, you know... I actually have a pretty simple question, I hope. Um, so, you talked about using touch and, and teaching them the command you know, touch. So what exactly happens? Does the dog just touch you with its nose on the leg? Do you put your hand down to you receive the touch? What's the best way to have that all happen? Well, the way, the way we do it and the way um, we talk to graduates about doing it, they just simply take their right hand, they would make a fist, they would put it down. Okay. And any normal dog, if you've never taught touch, the first thing they're going to do is, ooh, what's, in, what's that hand doing? The moment they touch, okay. we click and re reward. And then eventually we put a cue to it, and the word is touch. Yeah, I've done that with other things, but not with me as the end goal. I mean, I've, yeah. I've, ta I've used that in, in like, um, targeting things or, you know, that, but I haven't right. done it this way. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Question. Okay, where are we going? Coming back up front here. Okay. Um, I have a very social German Shepherd, which is unusual. It's a blessing. <laughs> All of my Shepherds before have been somewhat aloof to the public and very focused. This one has no focus. He's all over the place. But he's a good dog. He gives me good clearance. He does his traffic work well. Um, one of the things I've been trying to do with him is because he's an unusual color, People want to touch him, which is also another thing I'm not used to. Um, so when somebody is coming towards me, cooing and talking baby talk to him and telling him how beautiful he is and can they pet him, I pull him back into me quickly and I put him at sit and I put my hand on the top of his head and curve my fingers down under his chin and I'm sort of rubbing his the underside of his jaw with my fingers and I'm keeping his head in close to me so they can't really get to him without my hand being in the way and that seems to be working because he'll sit quietly and be attentive 
And I'm wondering if there is anything else I can do to start working on getting his focus back to where he's going instead of looking in all directions when we're walking down a hall, sticking his head through every doorway we pass to go, what's in there? Okay. Or, there's a staircase we've never been up. Come on, let's go over here. You know, instead of just keeping his line of, of travel. Well, let's, um, let's briefly, let's just, let, me, let me comment about, you know, your dog wanting to engage with people. I, I understand when you pull the dog back and you hold the dog back, but you have to understand that if you're, if you're restricting the dog's movement going towards the person, no matter how lightly you're restricting that movement, it is negative. It's a negative reinforcer. You're denying the dog what the dog wants to do. So predictably, the dog is always going to continue to try to do that because you've never taught the dog to do something else. Me, the moment someone says, can I, I would say, touch. And I would get the dog to focus back on me. No, you can't go see that person, but you can come to me, and I'm going to highly reward you for that. So you're teaching your dog that in response to someone making eye contact, approaching, doing all the stupid baby noises, leave the environment, come to me, I have something for you. It then becomes more predictable in the dog's behavior because you're predictable. I know that when you hold the dog back, you say, well, that can't be a negative. It is. It's it's a minor. It is minor, but it is negative. You're restricting the dog from doing what the dog wants to do. Don't tell the dog what not to do. Tell the dog what to do. If I were working a dog down a hallway and I'm working with a graduate, and every time we go by a door... The dog sticks its head in, sticks its head in, sticks its head in, and, you, and the grad says to me, see, he sticks his head in every time. I would say, well, that's pretty predictable behavior, right? So if you know it's going to happen, why aren't you being more proactive trying to stop it? It's just simply taking the leash out. The dog starts to move. You say, ah, nope, come on, let's go. And I understand at that moment that you're denying the dog what they want to do. But you also are trying to pattern the dog. And we don't live in a perfect world of science when working with guide dogs. Sometimes it does have to be slightly negative. But you can say, no, pop up, let's go. You could go two steps, stop, and reward the dog. But again, try to focus on being proactive and try to focus on giving the dog something to do rather than just telling the dog what not to do. The question about you saying you know, random reinforcement isn't really demonstrated in the real world, isn't the fact that our dogs work for us, continue to work for us, period, sort of an example of, because we don't reinforce, be it positive punishment or um, you know, positive reinforcement, uh, we, don't, we can't do that every time they do something right. So the fact that they keep doing it, isn't that kind of a demonstration that random rewards work? Uh. If you look at the technical definition of random reward and intermittent reward, mm-hmm. it's supposed to make the dog work harder to get the reward. Drive harder, work harder. Which, um, And I'm a fairly literal person. I don't look for, you know, to tear an explanation apart. So in my mind, if it were really truly working with my dog and they were working harder to get that reward because it becomes randomly to the dog, we deliver it on a random basis... I should see that dog way, 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 way before the curb. 
I mean, I'm talking halfway up the block, say, oh, my God, I want to get to that curb because I'm an, I may or may not get rewarded there today. And I never see that in guide dog work. I don't. And I really think the reason you don't see it is because of isolation. All these top trainers, when they're training in the field, they use random reward, and they'll tell you how well it works, and you can watch it work, and it works well. But I say that if they had to do that, if the dog had to perform, perform those behaviors all day out in the general public, and they were with that top trainer all day long, it wouldn't work as well. But that's just my crazy thought, and my wife will agree. Okay, we going up here? And then after this, I think uh, we'll, we'll let one brave trainer ask, ask a question over there. <laughs> oh, thank you. So do you think this touch technique would work to teach a dog to be quiet? You've noticed my dog, I'm sure, and she tends to be quiet most of the time and lie under the table. But when another dog is walking around and apparently coming toward her, she will growl because she doesn't want it in her space. If she's off-leash and both dogs are in the same room, they will probably play happily together. She's not aggressive, but she's very self-protective, I think. At least that's my latest theory about why she growls so much. (laughs) There's no... There's no doubt that sometimes the having a dog restricted by being in a harness, by being restricted on a leash, promotes behaviors that we don't want. Increases behaviors that we don't want. But you said the key word. You said to me, whenever a dog starts to approach and I hear a dog approaching, she does this behavior. If you can, if you can't hear it, if you don't know the dog's coming, there's not much you can do about it. But you could, but you could, when you first hear the wolf, you, I would begin to work on, instead of saying no, what you can't do, I would say touch what you can do, in hopes that eventually my dog sees a dog, they look towards me, and because you don't have sight, but eventually you might hear the dog and say, oh my God, my dog didn't bark, touch. And then the dog says, wow, I waited, I got, I got told what to do. And I got rewarded for doing that. So remember, if you can, whenever, and sometimes you can't, but if you can, it's always tell the dog what to do, not what to do. Jamie? Can you uh, talk a little bit about traffic training? Oh. <laughs> How much time do we got? <laughs> I want a random dance A few minutes, okay. Um, well, Traffic training. It's a, it's a little bit of a tangent of mine, and I don't know if you guys all want to hear it, because then you might think I'm really, really crazy. But, so I'll try to do it briefly as I can. Because I travel around, I get to see other programs conduct traffic outside of this country, and I get to see it done inside this country. So I'm really specifically talking at this point to um, the teaching of dogs in traffic. And I really got a bone to pick with some programs. Because they have taken the theory of dog training and they've just thrown it out the window. They're doing what they did 30 years ago. And I want to say to them, read the damn book. 
get it off your desk. Because what I see in some programs, the dog's first introduction of traffic is when the dog is almost being pushed by the car. That's their first introduction. They take the dog out, they pin the dog, and that's the dog's first introduction to traffic, pin. So I say, I mean the first principle of dog training is a dog has got to know the answer to the problem you're being presented, right? To be fair, I mean don't we teach the dog to sit? And then if the dog doesn't sit, we might give a correction. Don't we teach the dog how to stop at the edge of the stairs first? And then if they don't, we might give a correction. So when we give a correction, the dog says, oh my God, I know the answer. I know the answer. Sorry. You've taught me that answer. And the method I just told you, when they take the dog out and pin the dog right away, you're asking the dog to pull the answer out of his posterior. It's not fair. It's simply not fair. And the book will tell you that you're creating, you may be creating confusion. Now you'll say to me, yeah, but Dale, the dogs perform well. You know, eventually they get the idea of traffic and they perform well. Okay, fine. Is it fair to the dog? Do you create stress when you do that to the dog? You bet you do. Why not teach the dog the buffer first? Teach the dog what to do in response to the car first. Teach the dog that it, you know, if we're looking at these tables here, and it's the third table right there, teach my dog to stop here when the car's moving. Teach the buffer. Then, in response to the dog not responding to the buffer, I might actually drop the handle and say, ah, Come on back. And the dog says, oh my God, yes, 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 yes. I need to stop there. Eventually, traffic's pretty serious. We may have to pin the dog at some point. But at least at some point in training, if I pin the dog, the dog says, oh my God, I really know the answer now and I don't want to get anywhere near that car. So they know the answer to the problem that we've presented. I said to someone one time, we can teach the buffer with a clicker. Oh, no, you cannot. You cannot teach the buffer with a clicker. You can't teach traffic with a clicker. You can't do that. Really? Why? I can't teach the dog to stop here with a clicker? Eventually, yeah, there's going to be a negative reinforcer once I've taught the dog with the clicker. But why can't I do it fairly and make it clear to the dog to stop at the buffer? I think it is so unfair. It's... um. It's crude. It's, uh, it's, I, I, I just, I literally don't understand it when I see programs that do that. I think it can be done in a much more fair way. And I don't think they get really predictable behavior. Because I've seen dogs in that program, in programs that do that, and they say, yep, third. And while I'm on my high horse, <laughs> some of you do traffic three times. You gotta be kidding me. How many times do you work on curbs every day? And now the most important thing, one of the most important safety issues, you do three times? That's all? 
Three frickin' times? You gotta be kidding me. And the dog better get it. I heard of a program, and I'm gonna, not heard of it, but I heard of something, and I extrapolated, and it's not exactly how it happens. They have a good training program, and they do traffic well. But the person happened to tell me that, you know, just before training, just before traffic, we switch instructors. Interesting. And then I thought, well, for those people that actually pin the dog the first time, I think switching instructors is a good idea. You know why? Because then they give it back to the old instructor. And the dog gets back to the other instructor and they say, good God, do you know what they did to me while you were gone? (laughs) They pinned me. At least we didn't sacrifice the instructor's relationship with the dog. The dog goes back to the old instructor and would say, "Ah, thank you, can you please explain that to me? Because they just tried to run me over and I don't understand it. You risk blowing the dog's relationship. You risk making a very subdued dog that you now cannot read accurately for the rest of training. Because you've blown all trust. You work with the dog every day. You build up trust. Next thing you know, you're sitting there holding the dog. The car comes in and you're holding the dog. And the dog's going, holy crap, a car's coming. Could we move? I don't like this. No, no, we're going to hold you here. Talk about, I couldn't think of a better way to blow a dog's trust in you as a handler. Now I'm going to get off my tangent, and you should have never asked that question. We can talk about it at the instructor's meeting. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I think I'm done because I think I'm getting the hook. But I, I appreciate everyone coming. I appreciate your attention, and thank you so much. Thank you, John. Does this work? Yeah. Dale, thank you so much. We really enjoyed your presentation. And we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow at lunch. Okay, thank you. Okay, that's it, everybody. Um, If there's anybody left. um, We'll see you all tomorrow for another terrific program. And don't forget, we still have lots of products in the JDY suite, and they're all looking for homes with your dogs.